Okay, welcome all to a new session of the London Aesthetics Forum. Before we start, I'd like to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for supporting these events. I'm very happy to introduce Michael Newell, who is Director of Learning and Teaching of the School of Arts at the University of Kent, and he's also Director of the MA in Philosophy of Art and Aesthetics at that same university. Michael has published a number of um, if I may say so, pretty good papers on depiction, and he also recently has a, uh, a monograph on that topic titled, What is a Picture? And today he will present to us about seeing in as a transparency phenomenon. Thank you very much, Martin. Okay, so, philosophers disagree on the conditions that must hold for a viewer to understand a picture, but most agree that understanding a picture usually involves the experience of seeing in a visual awareness of the picture's subject matter in the picture's surface. This paper argues that seeing in is in fact an example of a kind of visual perception that is relatively well understood by perceptual psychologists, transparency perception. In the case of pictures, seeing in will typically involve a visual experience of both picture surface and subject matter, so that the subject matter appears as if seen through the surface of the picture. I should stay, say right now, um, I know this proposal is unlikely to seem initially appealing. Picture surfaces are not typically physically transparent, and nor do we usually report that they appear transparent. Rather, we think we perceive them as they typically are, as opaque surfaces. So my proposal is more subtle than it appears in this bold formulation, largely because transparency perception is a more subtle phenomenon than one might first imagine. We'll find, for instance, that transparency perception does not preclude our ability to see picture surfaces as opaque. Still, as it suggests, my proposal does call for an almost complete revision of current understanding of the experience of seeing in, and by extension, of our experience of pictures. Okay, seeing in. Seeing in, Richard Walheim held, involves a visual awareness of a surface, we'll call that Y, and also at the same time a visual awareness of some object X, which is in some sense perceived as in the surface, seen in the surface, hence his term seeing in, and his talk of, say, seeing X in Y. And he describes this double awareness that seeing in involves as twofoldness. The twofold character of seeing in contrasts with what we might call the single fold of ordinary visual perception. Seeing in can occur outside the realm of human-made artefacts or arise from an accidental marking, as when one sees you know, a weasel or a whale in a cloud formation, landscape or face in, a, in an ink blot. Um, in neither case does the visual awareness of the seen in object preclude the simultaneous awareness of the surfaces in which they are seen. So we, we remain, for instance, visually aware of shape, colour and so on of the ink blot, as well as being aware of uh, what it is we see in it, an airy landscape, grotesque face or whatever. Of special interest to Walheim, pictures can occasion seeing in. In particular, we see in them their subject matter. That is, pictures can occasion a visual awareness of the picture surface, that is the flat, drawn, printed or painted surface of the picture, and a simultaneous awareness of the three-dimensional arrangement of objects that is the picture's subject matter. Walheim proposed that seeing a picture's subject matter in its surface is a necessary condition for understanding the picture, or for understanding it as a picture. There is significant doubt that seeing in is in in every instance of pictorial understanding. In particular, it's now widely doubted that trompe l'oeil painting arouses this experience. But the idea that seeing in usually accompanies the understanding of pictures and ordinarily plays a role in understanding pictures has become widespread. Okay, 
Walheim would have objected to my proposal. He did not allow that the phenomenology, the phenomenology of seeing in could be understood in terms of the phenomenology of seeing. He wrote, such a comparison seems easy enough to take on, but it proves impossible to carry out. The particular complexity that one kind of experience has and the other lacks makes their phenomenology incommensurate. Since transparency perception is straightforwardly an aspect of the phenomenology of ordinary seeing, my proposal entails that Walheim is wrong on this point. Um, I'm not the only one to say that he's wrong on that point, but uh, people move in different ways uh, once they've decided that Walheim is wrong there. Okay, let me start by saying something about transparency perception. The perception of transparency involves the visual perception of one object through another. As Fabio Matelli puts it, quote, I quote, one perceives transparency when one sees not only surfaces behind a transparent medium, but also the transparent medium or object itself. Transparency perception has received substantial attention in perceptual psychology. Most of this is what psychologists call psychophysical. It relates to the visual experience of transparency and the conditions that a stimulus must satisfy in order to occasion that experience. And it's this research that I'll be drawing on. But keep in mind I'm not concerned here with, say, functional or neurological activities that underlie transparency perception. I'll be drawing especially on Matelli's widely cited article on the topic, which dates from uh, 1974 and appeared in Scientific American uh, with a range of beautiful illustrations. Um, and I'll also be drawing on uh, more recent research. As I say, there's, there's, there's a lot of this research. Um, I'll say more on transparency perception shortly, but for now, let me mention two points that will be relevant to my discussion. First, transparency perception should be distinguished from physical transparency. So a substance is physically transparent if light can be transmitted through it. And crucially for my proposal, transparency perception can occur without the presence of physical transparency. Matelli is clear on this point, and it is worth noting most of the experiments done on transparency perception since Matelli's influential article do not use actual transparent surfaces as stimuli, but rather arrangements of coloured shapes. Uh, get back to that. Arrangements of coloured shapes, uh, a bit like this, um, that we are apt to perceive as transparent. And this is an important point for my proposal because pictures, as I've said, of course, are not generally physically, trans physically transparent. The second point uh, is more substantial. S like seeing in, I think the perception of transparency involves a kind of twofold experience. To appreciate this point will help to introduce and exacting accounts of twofoldness. So, um, briefly, twofoldness on this account involves the perception of overlapping without the perception of occlusion. Now, here I go a bit further than Waldheim would have liked, but I don't think much further, and I think it's a minimal and intuitively attractive idea. Walheim would have objected to even saying that we have a perception of the picture surface and the subject matter as overlapping. I think that's where his uh, objection would lie. Um, with seeing in, uh, my claim is I mean, as, as I've said, that we're aware of the subject matter as if before or behind the picture surface that is overlapping or overlapped by it. 
and we retain a simultaneous visual awareness of both. I think this is a point I need to do a bit more work on, but I mean, think of it this way. If you have a picture, um, uh, I'm going to say a, a painty Rembrandt, and I'll show you one shortly, and you're, you're asked where a certain patch of paint is, you can point, you can point to it. Where is the patch of white paint? It's there. Um, where is the turban that it depicts? And you, you point at the same place. If you're asked to point to the outlines, um, you know you will outline the same shape. And I think that adds, you know, that adds further force to the intuitions that are behind this idea. In transparency perception, we see through the transparent overlapping object the overlapped object, giving us simultaneous visual awareness of both. So my claim here is that twofoldness is going to be a feature, is a feature of both seeing in and transparency perception. And that's the first thought that um, uh, pushes me towards my proposal. Um, I mean, the point, the, the point here, I, I just want to make sure you, you get it, is that uh, you, you, you see that as transparent. I just want to check. We'll come back to similar. I don't think I need to labour that. Um, okay. Now, some more on, on transparency perception. I mean, to draw the idea of seeing in and, um, and transparency perception closer still, I'm going to look at um, uh, what I'm calling the laws of schism that um, govern, and forgive me, I have trouble saying that word, I'll probably pronounce it in more than one way as we go on, uh, that govern transparency perception. I will argue that seeing in also obeys these laws. Um, According to Matelli, perception of transparent colours, both achromatic colours, that is black, white and grey, and chromatic colours, is governed by a law of schism. I'll read it out. He says, with the perception of transparency, the stimulus colour splits into two different colours. Stimulus colour is the important one, is that one in the middle. It splits into two different colours, which are called the Schism, schism colours. One of the schism colours goes to the transparent layer and the other to the surface of the figure below. There is a simple relation between the stimulus and the schism colours. When a pair of schism colours are mixed, they recreate the stimulus colour. Oh, skip over that one. So here, here they are. Um, these are examples um, for achromatic colours uh, and you can make similar diagrams for chromatic colours if I'm preparing this for publication uh, uh, to submit to a journal that sadly won't publish purple, won't publish uh, full colour um, in fact I'll be damn lucky if they publish this <coughs> yeah um, okay so these images each give the impression of one transparent square overlapping another. In the areas of overlap, one surface appears as if seen through another. Uh, that is, in the areas of overlap, we perceive both these cases. Uh, well, let us say we perceive A through B. That's what we perceive there, or vice versa, maybe B through A. Matelli's law of schism, as he's given us, as he's given it to us, tells us that so far as each of these diagrams do occasion this perception, the mixture of colours A and B is colour C. It will be apparent that this formula holds in different ways in diagrams one and two, since C is a different colour. A and B are the same in both. Um, in uh, the first one, C, is darker than either A or B. Um, and in this one, C is midway in, bet in between A and B. 
So different kinds of mixture are operative in each of these diagrams. And for this reason, it's better to talk of laws rather than a law of schism. In number one, C is a subtractive mixture of A and B. And in two, C is a fusion or additive mixture of A and B. Both kinds of mixture can produce the effect of transparency, as I think you see, I hope you see, and both correspond with instances of transparency perception in the natural world. So fusion mixture can be observed when a disc with segments of different colours is spun so that these component colours appear to blend or fuse into a single colour. Um, and this corresponds to the transparency observed when something is see, seen, say, through a haze or fog. Uh, the subtractive mixture above is familiar from the superimposition of coloured filters or gels. Light passing through a coloured filter has components subtracted from it. The filter will subtract brightness and may also subtract aspects of hue. And this corresponds to other natural effects, such as the effects of transparency when shadows, um, uh, when shadows overlap, they'll mutually darken one another. Um, yeah. We're obviously talking about light here as opposed to the additive process of paint. Yes. Um, that's another... Um, I mean, paint gets more complex again, but... Um, uh, yeah, if you mix pigments up, it's a subtractive mixture, um, and if and you'll know this from mixing. Though we you, you know we think yellow and blue, you add them together, you get a sort of greenish, usually a bit of a mucky greenish. The interesting thing here is it's a subtractive mixture. It always gets darker when you mix paints. When you mix lights, um, when you mix lights, uh, of course you overlap lights and they get lighter. And that is a slightly different thing from here, where it occupies a, a midpoint. Um, uh, yeah, but that's a that's that's a complex area that you can come back to me on. Okay. Or it, it's complex for someone from the humanities, such as myself. <laughs> let us say, I'm, I'm sure you can do. I, I'm sure you can do better than me. Uh, okay. Um, So, yeah, it's widely accepted in the literature on transparency that the same two kinds of mixture, fusion and subtractive mixture, will also produce chromatic transparency perception. Um, uh, and I don't have diagrams to show that, but a great one is if you have a, if you have a red square overlapping a purple, a, a red square and a blue square, um, and the, the area of overlap is, is painted in or made purple, you it seems to be blue through red, or vice versa. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful and very simple effect. Um, it, it has also, I should just add, more recently been found that other related changes in colour can also achieve transparency effects. So it doesn't have to be the precise fusion or subtractive mixture. Um, mixtures around um, those kinds of... Uh, uh, approximations of those can be very, very effective, just as effective as well. How's, how's this sounding so far? Okay. So, a similar law applies to the perception of texture. Takeo Watanabe and Patrick Kavanagh point out that, quote, we see textures overlapped wherever there are transparent, they call them, lacy structures that are interposed between the viewer and a background surface. It's one of their diagrams. They observe that like colour transparency, we can often perceive this overlap not as a new composite texture, that middle area, um, but as one texture seen through the other. We are able to decompose one texture from another, even if parts of them are overlapped. Um, texture transparency can thus be understood to accord with a similar law of schism, in that the mixture of the texture used to depict the overlap is what I will call a composite 
of these two textures. So the middle texture, if you like, is the composite. So the point is, we don't perceive one texture, two texture, three textures there. Uh, we, we just perceive um, two overlapping textures. That's the thought. And they use, you know, as is obvious, these schematic dashes um, to, to stand in for the kind of textures we're more uh, familiar with. But um, their point is that, that it, will, it, it does work more broadly. And I think we'll see shortly that that's, that's helpful in the case of pictures. Um, a final point before getting on to pictures themselves. Uh, and I'll just say this. These conditions are not the only ones necessary to arouse perception of transparency. There are other conditions um, which Matelli calls figural conditions about how these areas are actually arranged. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's not some, that's not an aspect which is easily translatable to pictures. I will just leave that floating there. Okay, so let me now state my proposal in detail. I think seeing in can be understood as a kind of transparency perception governed by these laws of schism. Um, that is, when seeing subject matter in a picture surface, the visible properties of the picture surface are experienced as separated into two sets of schism properties. One set is attributed to the picture surface, the other to the subject matter. Um, here, when I talk about schism, I mean it's in just the sense that Matelli and others do. It accords with the rules that govern transparency perception. So these schism qualities subjected to the appropriate kinds of mixture described, I've already described, will recreate the stimulus properties. That's the idea. Um, let me now turn to the concern that we don't perceive the picture surface as transparent. The first thing I should make clear is that my proposal does in fact uh, contradict this, and this does go against our common sense notion of pictures, that they are not experienced like panes of glass through which we see the subject matter. Now, my proposal does in fact allow that we can also be visually aware of the picture surface as being an opaque surface, having the colours it does in fact have. However, this awareness cannot be simultaneous with the visual awareness of the depicted subject matter. That is, the full awareness of the picture surface where it occurs will alternate with the awareness of the surface as transparent. And you might recognise uh, this move uh, as a move um, pioneered by Gombrich. By Gombrich. Um, but it also appears, uh, tellingly I think, in Matelli. He allows for just such an alternating awareness in transparency perception, he writes. If the region of superimposition is isolated, even if it is just by the attitude of the observer, then only the stimulus colour is perceived. So too, if we isolate the picture surface by covering all except a patch of paint or by moving in very quickly or even if just by the attitude of the observer, then my proposal allows that we can have a visual awareness of the picture surface as it really is, coloured and opaque. So rather than saying that we're never visually aware of the picture surface as opaque, I claim that we cannot at the same time be visually aware of the picture surface as, as opaque and be aware of the subject matter. Matelli also the existence of limiting cases of transparency and these also have pictorial counterparts. So he says, if all the colour goes to the transparent layer, it becomes opaque. If all the colour goes to the underlying surface, then the transparent layer becomes invisible. Transparency is perceived only when there is a distribution of stimulus colour to both these layers. So it's a 
counterparts, you'll have a situation where no properties are attributed to the subject matter and the surface remains opaque in its appearance, not just intermittently, as I've suggested above, but permanently. And that's a case of, if you like, pictorial failure. No seeing in will occur. Um, in the second counterpart, all the picture surfaces visible properties are attributed to the subject matter and loses all visual awareness of the picture surface. The picture surface will seem to have something of the quality of a clear pane of non-reflecting glass through which the subject matter is seen. And I think that is, in fact, uh, something like an, is really an experience that we do sometimes have in front of pictures occasionally. Neither of these experiences, however, are twofold, and so neither are examples of transparency or seeing in, strictly speaking. But I'm going to talk about the latter case in a moment in some detail because it is predicted uh, by this account and because some pictures do occasion this experience. Okay, I'll see how this slide is going to work. For I think, I think that'll do the trick. Okay, so this is a photographic image um, of a class of milk that appears on this book, A Clockwork Orange. Um, the milk is depicted by white or slightly grey colour. I'm not sure what you want to call it. Whatever you like, I don't mind. And that appears, I claim, as if a little behind the picture surface. That is... This surface. While we have this experience, the picture surface as if it lacks all its colour properties. That is, it appears wholly transparent. That's my claim. Note that in this case, and in others I'll consider shortly, my claim is not that we see different colours when we alternate between a visual awareness of only the picture surface and a visual awareness that incorporates the subject matter. Rather, we attribute the same colour to different objects. We experience the white colour to the picture surface in the first instance, and in the second instance, to the subject matter's surface, to the milk. Now, I think the difference, and the reason why I show you this image, is the difference can be directly compared here. There's a strip of white below the photograph, and this white is a similar, maybe slightly different, colour to that which depicts the milk, or at least, you know, I think it's, say, to you know, that area. But the stripe has no depictive content. We see it only as a feature of the surface of the cover design. And compare this to the white colour we see the milk as having. In these two cases, we experience the same colour, but attribute it to a different object. So my contention is that we are visually aware of the milk. We have no visual awareness of the white as belonging to the picture surface, as we do when we examine the white stripes, the white stripe in the cover design. Rather, the white colour appears just pushed back a little way into the virtual space of the picture, attached to the surface of the milk rather than the surface of the book cover. It could be objected that we do retain an awareness of the surface as white and opaque. And I would agree with this, but with the crucial qualification that this awareness is not at that moment part of one's visual awareness. And I've got a bit I could say on that, but I'll just summarise it uh, in a line by saying, uh, sure, we're aware uh, of the surface. Let's say you have the book there. Uh, we may be aware of the surface of the book, assuming it's, it, it's evenly lit. We don't see you know, reflections and so on. We're aware of the surface, but we don't see it. So that's my... It's an awareness you know, on the basis of various cues and so on. But it's not a visual awareness. Okay, are you, are 
I get onto more. I'm up to, to case studies now and more pictures. Okay. Um, so as I say, I mean that's that does not really qualify on my account as a case of seeing in. But I think this account does indeed illuminate it. So I now turn to examples of seeing in proper, starting with relatively straightforward cases and progressing to more complex, challenging examples of my proposal. Um, in addition to the expected instances of twofold perception, we shall on closer inspection find that one uh, one example turns out, which is uh, Walheim sees as definitive uh, exemplary of seeing in to be one fault rather than two fault. Okay. The first example, very quickly, is a glossy photograph, or if you like, consider this book cover in real life, you know, with fluorescent light reflections coming off it. Um, the, the effect of such partial reflection that you get on, say, book cover like that, shiny, glossy magazine cover. It's no longer like looking through non-reflective transparent glass, but something like looking through a white veil or mist where the reflection is there. The colour associated with the reflection is usually attributed to the picture surface, uh, while the other colours are attributed to the subject matter. Partially reflected light will produce a fusion mixture between its colours and those of the reflective surface, since it involves a mixture of light. Therefore, this example will straightforwardly accord with a law of schism, for a fusion mixture of the schism colours will here recreate the stimulus colour. Okay. These examples get uh, tougher for me as I go along. So a sepia photograph next. I take it that a sepia toned photograph will usually be found to give an experience, will usually not be found to give an experience of yellowish subject matter. But I'm curious seeing what kind of experience this does. Could I get a sh show of hands? Do you? Do you see yellowish people in this? Uh, are they kind of like the Simpsons? Yellow people? Okay. Alright, that's good. I'm right about this then. Because the context is all yellow. Well, it is... yeah. If, if it were not, that's a point. I think I see Jane Greer now, but certainly Robert Mitchell. I think that's out of the past, a.k.a. Build My Gallows High. Is that that's right? I see. Okay, you're, do, you're doing... <laughs> this came straight off the internet. That's what I, that's what I can tell you well, about it. Then, uh, then that will sound good. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think, I think you agree with me here. I hope. The experience can be likened to that of seeing the subject matter through a filter-like device that translates all the hues into corresponding <coughs> shades of yellow. Here the picture surface's hue, that is yellow, is attributed to the picture surface, to the surface of this sepia photograph, while the surface's tonal properties are attributed to the subject matter. And this example also straightforwardly accords, accords with the laws of schism. For a subtractive mixture of yellow with an appropriate variety of white, black and grey tonal properties will result in just this kind of variety of yellowish tones. Okay. Now I want to get on to... I think what is going to be what will be the most challenging case for me here. I've got, I think, an even more challenging one, which I won't, which is in a longer version of the paper, which I won't touch on. Um, I'll show you the pictures for it, though. Anyway, paintings with visible brushstrokes. It's a more complex case. It's also a crucial one for my proposal, because the experience of paintings with visibly impasted brushwork. Uh, is a typical Walheimian, I think the archetypal Walheimian example seeing in. So my account here, as I say, is more complex and it has two parts. The first is the obvious one implied by my proposal. 
experience brushstrokes colours as belonging to the subject matter, while the textures are attributed to the picture surface. Seeing in would here involve an awareness of the brushstrokes covering the picture surface as transparent textures through which the colours of the subject matter are seen. The experience visually would be like seeing the subject matter through textured glass. Now, I think we do in fact experience certain some pictures in this way. The effect is readily observed when the subject matter is not itself textured. For instance, when a clear blue sky is painted with visibly discernible blue brush strokes, the blue of the sky appears as if seen through a textured but otherwise perfectly transparent surface. I don't know how this slide is coming up though. Are you, are you getting something of the effect I'm after? So the thought is that you know, these, these are blue brush strokes of paint, but it's like... Uh, uh, um, if so far as you can see blue through there, you know, if I can say, can you, can you try and make yourself see a patch of blue sky through there? So far as you're successful, my claim is that you're going to see this as a transparent, uh, transparent textured surface. Um, I think a kind of smear surface would probably I think I could I could probably get it I could get I'm sure I could get it to work for that. Now occasionally the entire surface of a painting can promote this textural schism. Those with a thick, broadly brushed undercoat and a thinly painted picture over the top can achieve this effect. But the effect is most clearly seen in a context somewhat outside painting where it's achieved systematically in certain kinds of mass-produced prints, such as this one, an oilette postcard produced by Raphael Tuck and Sons in the early 20th century. So I went to the BSA conference in Edinburgh and all I came back with was a produce. <laughs> so, as you can see, it's a reproduction of a printed on card embossed with a brushstroke pattern. The embossed pattern of brush strokes gives the impression of a transparent texture through which the subject matter of the reproduced painting is seen. That's my account of the phenomenology here. I think it's, you know, again, it's not the world's best reproduction here, but uh, no, I, I hope that's clear in, in aspects of it. I think the sky is maybe the best example. I think that the balloon, the blues leach out here. If anyone's interested later on in looking at the images here, you're, you're welcome to. Um, okay. So these paintings obviously are exceptions. Um, they're produced in strange ways, uh, and most paintings do not afford such experiences. The brushwork in many paintings, like this one, appears for the most part not as a transparent surface but as closely imbricated with the subject matter it depicts. And the second part of my analysis is addressed to this. Watanabe and Kavanagh in their work on texture transparency identify conditions under which schism does and does not occur. The interest here when elements of overlapping textures line up with one another and are of the same size, schism tends to be resisted, they say. And the viewer instead is more likely to perceive a single composite texture at the area of overlap. So that's the, the diagram on the left. Um, this one shows the contrasting example where the textures are obliquely oriented and that, they claim, increases the impression of transparency. Now, the relation of the embossed brush strokes of the Ouellette painting, um, the relation of those embossed brush strokes with the depicted textures of its subject matter satisfies Watanabe and Cavanaugh's conditions for schism 
The embossed brush strokes are readily apparent, especially in raking light. They're much larger than the depicted textural elements, clumps of foliage, puffs of cloud, and so on. And, uh, yeah, there we are. and rather than being oriented in the same way, the textures, uh, the textures of the embossed brush strokes cut across the actual um, depicted textures and indeed the bodies, depicted bodies themselves. The Rembrandt provides where are we going? Sorry. Rembrandt provides a contrasting a contrasting example. Um, I think this isn't though I know, you know, Rembrandt famous for his dark paintings, all we'll need is that little kind of light patch up there for me to make this point. Um, the brush strokes in terms of size, shape and orientation often for the depicted textures. They do not reproduce textures exactly, but they present, say, a comparable grain and run in the same direction as the textures they depict. Most prominently here, the long curving folds of Rembrandt's turban are depicted with similarly like long curving brush strokes. Watanabe and Cavanaugh's that we should not be surprised to find that these techniques act to resist textural schism, where paint texture and depicted texture are similar in size and orientation as that as they are here. They resist texture texture schism, and as we see in those sections of Rembrandt's self-portrait that I've mentioned, they are attributed to a single surface. It's not the surface of the picture, the surface of the subject matter. So, I say again, I think the perception, you know, we perceive the textures here, the textures of the paint, as imbricated with the subject matter in its own space. And this creates the appearance of a composite texture, comprised of the texture the picture is depicted as having through the manipulation of tone and the texture of the paint, which we also attribute to the depicted surface. Notes, though, a consequence of this analysis. This kind of pictorial experience will be contra Walheim, not twofold where paint texture is seen not as a feature of the picture's surface, but as imbricated with the subject matter in this way, there is no twofoldness and no seeing in. Now, this is a feature of my analysis, uh, which um, I think very fortunately for me lines up wonderfully well with um, work on inflection. What I've called imbrication here. Um, when I, when I get round to doing a bit more work on this paper, I'm simply going to call inflection. And I, th I think the work on the, the work that's been done, uh, which really pulls away uh, this kind of picture perception from seeing in a twofoldness, is uh, it, it's 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 very good, but mostly very mostly very new. A bunch of it published last year. Um, okay. Um, so, for paintings with textured brushwork, my proposal is that pictorial experience involves one or other of two kinds, the two kinds of experience I've just described, it's either schism or imbrication slash inflection. Um, and I'm also, I think, in practice, um, stepping back and forth in front of it, uh, you'll find these kinds of experiences alternating as well, or they'll apply to one part of the painting. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the textures here are difficult to see. Um, you know, I think it schism occurs there, invocation, inflection occurs there. Um, okay. Um, I'll just show you the pictures. These are the most difficult examples um, that I've worked with, and partly difficult because I think the perception of them is there's just very little work done in psychology on 
how on earth line works to create this rich impression of um, tone and texture in paintings, uh, in, in images, prints like this. This is um, famous, you may know it, it's just a, a little bit um, of the, the image, it's the entire face, face of Christ on the veil of St. Veronica. Uh, it's made with a, a single line spiralling outwards. It's a virtuoso feat, uh, 17th century printmaking. But I will leave those aside to focus instead on another virtuoso feat. This is the last difficult case um, that I'm going to deal with. It's pictures depicting subject matter that appear to project from the picture surface. So all my examples so far have dealt with subject matter that appears to lie behind the picture surface. Uh, but subject matter can also appear to project out from it. How does transparency figure in our experience? I've got an elegant response, if I do say, my, say so myself, to this question. And I'll use uh, these chalk drawings by this um, pavement artist, Julian Beaver, as an example. And this one does the trick quite well. Um, and, I mean, I, I probably need to say very little about it, really. Um, I mean, the, the claim is simply that we see, um, rather than seeing the picture surface, the pavement, as transparent, the pavement appears opaque. The thing that appears transparent uh, is the subject matter now. It appears, because it's projecting, if you like, it appears to be projecting out of the picture surface. Um, it appears <coughs> transparent. That's the, the effect I'm after. You're getting that, something of that here. Again, I think if you're interested to see more strongly uh, on the, the laptop, um, but I think it's, you know, I, I hope it's fairly compelling. This is another example which, um, again, it's, I think it's going to be a bit difficult to make out uh, in this, with this projection, um, but here you get both phenomena together. So this is, of course, this is a kind of play on, I suppose, uh, Carl Andre's sculpture in the Tate uh, so here's one bit of the, the drawing here um, and it's just the space underneath the pavers where the pavers have been taking, taken up to reveal uh, the, the beach beneath perhaps um, uh, and here we see the um, and you may just get a bit of it you know, ghostly sense of the um, pavement as transparent Beneath it. Here, um, it's the subject matter that's transparent and the pavement underneath um, appears opaque. Okay, so my proposal means just a simple adjustment in the case of such pictures. Um, these cases, rather than seeing the subject matter through a seemingly transparent picture surface, we see the surface through the seemingly transparent subject matter. Um, okay, before concluding, I should first repeat that seeing in describes fewer instances of pictorial experience than Walheim thought. Examples where we experience imbrication or inflection of subject matter and the marks that depict them are the prime Walheimian examples of seeing in that I reject. But these examples accord with and are illuminated by, um, as are other examples of pictorial experience that Walheim has trouble with, such as uh, Trompe l'oeil. Um, and I get a longer version of the paper that lines up with the, uh, the accounts of the book cover. Okay. So let me now finish by giving a clear account of seeing in terms of transparency perception. So I've argued. Um, I've argued that both experiences are two that seeing in obeys laws of schism and that crucially really uh, the phenomenology 
the, the proposal, uh, the, the program does hold up when you look in a detailed way at, I think, challenging cases. So it's the phenomenology. You know, this is what I've been arguing for with the case studies. The phenomenology is right as well. Sorry, I've lost, I'm almost there, just lost my place again. Okay, so the claim is that seeing X in a surface Y is a matter of being visually aware of one of these as being transparent and seeing the other through it. So it's as simple as that. Um, one with the experience of Y is a straightforward notion since Y, the picture surface, is indeed there. Um, more needs to be said about the experience of X, the subject matter, which is not there. Um, and I'll leave out my discussion on that, but I, I argued that um, that is still an experience of seeing. It should be understood in phenomenological sense and the fullest sense of seeing. Perhaps not the fullest sense of seeing. In a, phenomenologically, in a phenomenological sense, it's not essentially different uh, from actually seeing something. Um, and so I call that non-veridical seeing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, all I need, if you like, the, the tools are to give an account of um, seeing in, in terms of transparency of perception, are uh, the concepts drawn from psychology of transparency perception. Uh, this kind of phenomenolog phenomenological analysis uh, and uh, an account um, of like non-veridical visual awareness. Um, let's say seeing in transparency perception incorporating a veridical visual awareness of a surface and a non-veridical visual awareness of an absent object would have its most simple. Okay, that, that's it folks. Thank you.